welcome to the podcast, Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path, and I'm your host, Mike Allen. Well, there's nothing, at least to me, quite like a Sherlock Holmes mystery. Today, we're going to reveal the secrets of the first man to ever play Sherlock Holmes in the theater, a Connecticut man, William Gillette. And yes, he's the same guy who built the well-known Gillette Castle on the banks of the Connecticut River in East Haddam. Here to tell us some extremely memorable stories about Gillette and his castle is the guy who literally wrote the book on Gillette, Eric Offgang. The book is called Gillette Castle, A History. And when he's not busy writing books, Eric's byline can often be spotted in Connecticut Magazine as well as several other publications. And now, the mystery of Sherlock Holmes and his Connecticut castle. I've always loved Sherlock Holmes and all the mysteries he solves in Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's series of books. His deductive reasoning and all the ways he goes about it are just really intriguing. That's why I was pretty upset to find out not too long ago that Basil Rathbone, the guy I always associated with Sherlock Holmes, is not really the guy who set up the character of Sherlock Holmes. In fact, he wasn't the first one to play it. As our guest today, Eric Offgang, will reveal, that's probably because Basil Rathbone was the one who appeared in all the movies about Sherlock Holmes. But he came along 40 years, four decades after the original Sherlock Holmes, who was Connecticut's own William Gillette. Now, both of them were born in the 1800s, but Gillette, as I said, came along 40 years before Rathbone, and he also established, much more importantly, some very well-known givens about the Sherlock Holmes character that we remember to this very day, and we'll get into that more in just a bit. So the big difference between them, Rathbone played in the movies, Gillette was the on-stage variety of Sherlock Holmes in the theater, and he only once did the character in front of a camera, and wait until you hear that story. I need to do a full disclosure here. When I was a kid, my older sister used to read Sherlock Holmes stories to me, so I was very much looking forward to doing this interview with you. When you look at William Gillette, you know, born in the 1850s, before the Civil War, died in the 1930s, sort of in the height of the Depression, but he was born into pretty prominent circumstances in terms of the Nook Farm section of Hartford. His dad's a senator. His mom's descended from Thomas Hooker. Tell us about William Gillette, the person. So, yes, as you said, he was born into this very prestigious social circle in Connecticut. His father's a senator across the yard from him. A neighbor is Mark Twain. Harriet Beecher Stowe lives right nearby. So he grows up in this sort of rich intellectual setting. His family, his friends, the people he encounters are, you know, very intelligent, very progressive for the time. It's funny because he always has this interest in sort of acting and set design and things like that. It's not an interest that his family thinks very much of. At the time, acting for someone of his background is kind of looked down upon. You know, they don't encourage that interest overall. However, he would later credit his father with helping him develop his distinctive style. So William Gillette was known, he, he wrote a famous treatise on acting called The Illusion of the First Time. And his whole philosophy was that when an actor is reciting their lines, it shouldn't sound like they're reciting it from memory. It should be that sound like they're thinking about it as they go for the first time. And he credited his father with having 
inspired that in him as a young boy uh, won an elocution contest and he was so proud that he had won first place and he went to show he read the piece for his father and his father said you know that's not how the speech was really delivered it was much more dramatic he was thinking about the words and that's something that young William Gillette really took to heart and what he wrote was the idea is that we are not reciting literature not reciting anything that has ever been written or said before we are talking saying the first things that come into our heads thinking them out as we say them hesitating and wondering and sometimes blundering over it all well, it's funny when you think about a an accomplished U.S. senator today, you could almost say they have stage presence. Yes, yes. there, And I think even back then, there certainly was that part of it where it is very practiced and polished. You know, I'm glad you brought up the article or the book that he wrote about stage presence, because when he set out, if I have my facts straight, he realized that in order to make money in this field— he couldn't just rely on acting. He would have to be a director and a playwright as well. Was he as successful in those other two spheres as he was in acting? Yes, he was. You know, what he found out is that he wasn't getting the parts he wanted. And so he started writing his own parts, parts that suited his style. He was known for sort of playing these roles in which things would get really intense and bad. and He would stay incredibly calm. And that is sort of a, a niche role. So he would write his own parts to sort of highlight those abilities. He's been largely forgotten outside of Connecticut today. And that's in large part because there's very little recordings of him that exist. But on the you know American stage, you know, he was one of the, the brightest stars. He was a name that could bring a guaranteed blockbuster. Now, before we get into him playing Sherlock Holmes, let's talk about the guy who created Sherlock Holmes, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And uh, just a, a quick bit on him. So he comes up with this devious Professor Moriarty, the Napoleon of crime, and he wrote 24 books. What I did not know, and I suppose every great writer thinks of somebody or has a model in their head when they create a character, Dr. Joseph Bell, one of Doyle's medical school professors, was actually the model for Sherlock Holmes. Do I have that right? Yes, 100% right. That As he's in medical school at Edinburgh College in Scotland, he meets this figure, Dr. Joseph Bell, who has this ability, this uncanny almost ability to discern facts about people from looking at them. He can make these diagnoses uh, based not on what they tell him, patients, but what they do in front of him. And, you know, it, you know, he makes very dramatic pronouncements, very, very Sherlock Holmes, at least in the way that Arthur Conan Doyle later recounted that. Well, the lasting nature of Sherlock Holmes is just incredible. I mean, just the other day, somebody said something that was pretty obvious. I said, great job, Sherlock. You know, I mean, it's, it's something that uh, we all tend to do, I think, a little bit. But you know, getting into how then Gillette got into Sherlock Holmes, I find this fascinating too, because he was 46 years old when he first stepped on stage as, as Sherlock Holmes, and he was not the first choice by Doyle to do this. And also, he wasn't reflecting the 24 books. There was something separate, like a play that Doyle wrote. And, and just tell us that whole story, if you would. So Arthur Conan Doyle creates this character, He's very popular, Sherlock Holmes, as you mentioned. He just, you know, is this fascinating character. He has this, essentially a superpower to solve mysteries. Arthur Conan Doyle is just 
not having fun writing these stories anymore. He he doesn't want to keep writing about Sherlock Holmes. He talks about it and he says part of the problem that makes him not interesting to write about is anytime you kind of humanize him, it takes away from him. So he has to be remote and a little bit mysterious. Very later, he did write a story from Sherlock Holmes' perspective. It's not one of the better known Sherlock Holmes stories. It doesn't work as well, I don't think, unless we're seeing the story through Dr. Watson's eyes. And so he doesn't like the character. He creates Moriarty, the Napoleon of crime, to kill the character off. And he does that. Ultimately, in a short story, he introduces Moriarty and Sherlock Holmes falls, presumably to a certain death. He leaves a little bit of an out for himself because he doesn't produce the body. But he more or less, you know, intends that to be the final Holmes story. He's writing um, his more, he thinks, more serious work. And then financial problems occur. He needs more money. Um, I believe he's building a house in England and, and an elaborate house and wants to build that. So he decides that he's going to make a play. William Gillette is not the first choice. They're, they go through some potential English actors. He ends up meeting with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and is interested. He's not an obvious choice. He's not, you know, he's not English. He's an American actor. But he ends up meeting with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and he arrives in full dressed as Sherlock Holmes. And Arthur Conan Doyle is blown away. You know, he's really excited to have William Gillette take on the role. But mostly he's talking about how successful it's going to be. I think he, he knows William Gillette is a star and that he's going to do well with it. And what happens is, as William Gillette takes on this role, he introduces the visual elements, a lot of the visual elements we associate with Sherlock Holmes to this day. They were sort of hinted at in some of the early illustrations, but never really described in the stories themselves. So William Gillette gives Sherlock Holmes a deerstalker cap. He has the curved pipe. The phrase, you know, elementary, my dear Watson, appears in the book. He solidifies it on the stage. He helps sort of take the character to the sort of next level. William Gillette starts performing as Sherlock Holmes. He gives him this look. There's now this image to associate with the character. And, you know, the play is just a tremendous blockbuster to the point where even Arthur Conan Doyle has to more or less bring the character back to life and do more stories. Wow. Now, he played Holmes, Gillette played Holmes 1,300 times over 30 years, which is just phenomenal. And to your point earlier, he didn't really, you know, get into the movie part of it. He made a silent movie version, I think, in 1916 that was lost and then recovered and voiced him twice on radio. But other than that, that's it. And, and what do you know about that silent movie and the recovery of that? It's a fascinating story because I had written a story about the castle. Um, you know, this was lost. No one had ever seen it. The It was often referred to as the Holy Grail of silent film. And it was found in an archive in France. It was a French version of the film, and it had been mislabeled for decades. And it was discovered, like you said, about 10 years ago. And it just was this amazing thing for film historians, for Sherlock Holmes historians and fans, and as well as for those of us who study William Gillette to get to see his stage presence, see him perform. You know, he was noted for the power of his delivery as well. So you don't get to see that as much in the film, but you do see his stage presence. He's tall, he's commanding. There's a couple, the uh, Nivers, who play William Gillette 
and his wife, they portray him for many, many years at uh, Gillette Castle. And they went out to California for the premiere and met with people who were waiting online who couldn't get in. And it was just this great moment in the saga. William Gillette didn't like curtain calls. He really didn't like coming out of character. He liked to remain a little aloof with the audience so that they'd see him as the character rather than the actor. And I write in the book that this was kind of this one last curtain call. All of a sudden, years after his death, you know, he's back making national headlines with the rediscovery of this film. What a great story. The castle itself, you know, in East Haddam is just, it, it's, it's gothic, of course, in its uh, approach, but it just looks so funky. And it's an amazing looking piece of architecture, all field stone. And when you start digging in and finding out that it took you know, 20 laborers working full time for five years to build this and Gillette is sort of overseeing everything and putting his personal touch on all the interior and exterior design. And then he built this train. What else can you tell us about this property? It's just an amazing space. It's the tallest of seven hills that are connected overlooking the Connecticut River. It's striking from every direction and you, you see it. And it's just this, like you said, it's just this wonderfully funky and bizarre place. And I think the New York Times once derisively described it as a, a mixture of medieval and paper mache or, or something like that. It's just this kind of, you know, he designed it himself. He said he never designed it to look like a castle. He'd call it his pile of rocks. You know, when it was built, it, you know, people started dubbing it a castle. It does indeed look like a castle, but it's not exactly like a classic castle. It's just a very strange collection of rocks and turrets. The interior is, is this fascinating place. It gives you a real sense of his quirky character. Each door has this intricate system of pulleys to turn the knob. And there's, you know, all these spinning wooden wheels. It's, it's incredibly in intricate and beautiful to look at. And, and all it does is really turn a doorknob. So it's in also incredibly inefficient, but just so cool. And there's hidden passageways. He would be able to see his guests arrive through these different mirrors and play tricks on them. You know, the bar had a trick locked. And he would watch guests from his bedroom, try to get to the bar and then come down and, you know, undo the trick and very easily like serve a drink and be like, oh, I don't know what's wrong with you. So he was just this kind of prankster and showman who seemed to have a lot of fun kind of in everything he did. There was a train that used to run through the property and you could walk along that trail. It was a small theme train. The trail itself, you know, it's sometimes even parts of it, you don't want to walk because it, it, it's so close to the ledges. And you, and you can imagine riding on that. He would apparently go at breakneck speed and terrify all his guests who were brave enough to ride it. Now, he even had trestle bridges and tunnels on that train ride. Isn't that true? Yes, there are trestles, tunnels. Um, it's, you know, one of those things that there were way more expense, way more time put into it than, you know, a, a reasonable person might do. But it, again, he had such a flair for the dramatic. Yeah, on stage and off, apparently. So Connecticut buys this property in the 1940s, has renovated it. And uh, when was the last time you were there? It was actually probably about two years ago now. When you get up there, it's great. You have to be a little careful because sometimes, you know, the park itself is open much more than the castle interior. So if you want to see both the exterior and the interior, you got to make sure you're going when the castle interior is open. Both are well worth the time. It's There's so many places to walk up there. It's a beautiful view. People have picnics. 
so much history around there. I like to take the ferry at the base of the castle over to Chester, which is right across from the castle. And it's like a five minute ferry ride that costs something like $5. I mean, it's just this really very quintessentially Connecticut thing to do. This quirky, strange commuter ferry that still exists and that still runs most of summer, spring and fall. If people from out of state are visiting and asking what to do, visiting Gillette Castle is one of the, the best day trips you can do. up this episode of Amazing Tales from Off and On, Connecticut's Beaten Path. I want to very much thank my guest for this episode, Eric Offgang, author of the book Gillette Castle, A History. Well, it really is elementary, my dear listeners. If you want to know when the next podcast episode of Amazing Tales will be ready for launching, all you need to do is subscribe to Amazing Tales wherever you get your podcasts. Also, I make appearances to do presentations on the topics I discuss here on Amazing Tales, both in person and via Zoom. If you're interested in having me speak to your group, just email me at amazingtalesct at gmail.com. Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. This is Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy. Stay healthy.